Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 116, Horace Mann, Education Innovator. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss Horace Mann's work to modernize the education system in Boston and across the country against the backdrop of Boston's history as a city committed to education. But before we talk about Horace Mann, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week, in honor of the 100th anniversary of the Molasses Flood on Tuesday, is Dark Tide by Stephen Poleo. As a refresher, the Molasses Flood occurred on January 15, 1919. The flood occurred in the North End when a large molasses storage tank burst and a wave of molasses rushed through the streets at an estimated 35 miles per hour, killing 21 and injuring 150. We discussed the event in detail in episode 73. The next day, the Boston Post carried a graphic account. The sight that greeted the first of the rescuers on the scene is almost indescribable in words. Molasses, waist-deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on a sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. Paleo's Dark Tide is a must-read for any Bostonian. From the book's cover, Shortly after noon on January 15, 1919, a 50-foot-tall steel tank filled with 2.3 million gallons of molasses collapsed on Boston's waterfront, disgorging its contents in a 15-foot-high wave of molasses that traveled at 35 miles per hour. When the tide receded, a section of the city's north end had been transformed into a war zone. The Great Boston Molasses Flood claimed the lives of 21 people and scores of animals, injured more than 100, and caused widespread destruction. There had been warnings. Isaac Gonzalez, the general man who worked at the tank, had heard its rumblings and saw the molasses that leaked through its seams and streamed down its sides. He had even seen children use pails to scoop up the molasses that pooled at its base. His nightmares about the tank collapsing were vivid enough to send him running through the streets of Boston in the middle of the night during the summer of 1918 to make sure that the tank was still standing. But this wasn't what Arthur P. Gell, U.S. Industrial Alcohol's assistant treasurer who had overseen the entire project, from leasing a site for the tank in a crowded Italian-American residential neighborhood to seeing that the tank was built in record time, wanted or needed to hear. USIA was distilling most of the molasses stored in the tank into industrial alcohol, used to produce munitions during World War I, and gel needed to meet ever-growing production quotas without interference. For the first time, the story of the molasses flood is told here in its full historical context. Tracing the era from the tank's construction in 1915 through the multi-year lawsuit that followed the disaster, and drawing from long-lost court documents, fire department records, and newspaper accounts, Stephen Paleo uses the gripping drama of the molasses flood to examine the sweeping changes brought about by World War I, Prohibition, the anarchist movement, immigration, 
and the expanding role of big business in society. It's also a chronicle of the courage of ordinary people, from the firemen caught in an unimaginable catastrophe to Judge Hugh Ogden, the soldier lawyer who presided over the lawsuit against USIA with heroic impartiality. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Steve Luxenberg will present a myth-shattering narrative of how a nation embraced separation and its pernicious consequences. Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court case synonymous with separate but equal, created remarkably little stir when the justices announced their near-unanimous decision on May 18, 1896. Yet it is one of the most compelling and dramatic stories of the 19th century, whose outcome embraced and protected segregation, and whose reverberations are still felt into the 21st. Regarding Luxembourg's book of the same name, the publisher's website tells us, Separate spans a striking range of characters and landscapes, bound together by the defining issue of their time and ours, race and equality. Wending its way through a half-century of American history, the narrative begins at the dawn of the railroad age in the North, home to the nation's first separate railroad car, then moves briskly through slavery and the Civil War to Reconstruction in its aftermath, as separation took root in nearly every aspect of American life. Award-winning author Steve Luxenberg draws from letters, diaries, and archival collections to tell the story of Plessy v. Ferguson through the eyes of the people caught up in the case. Separate depicts indelible figures such as the resistors from the mixed-race community of French New Orleans, led by Louis Martinet, a lawyer and crusading newspaper editor, Homer Plessy's lawyer Albion Tourget, a best-selling author and the country's best-known white advocate for civil rights, Justice Henry Billings Brown, from anti-slavery New England, whose majority ruling endorsed separation, and Justice John Harlan, the southerner from a slaveholding family whose singular dissent cemented his reputation as a steadfast voice for justice. Sweeping, swiftly paced, and richly detailed, Separate provides a fresh and urgently needed exploration of our nation's most devastating divide. The event will take place on Monday, February 18th at 6 p.m., with a reception at 5.30. There's a $10 per person fee, but no charge for MHS fellows, members, or EBT cardholders. Registration is required, and we'll post a link in this week's show notes. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Boston is a city that, historically, has taken education very seriously. It would be fair to say that BPS is struggling today, and charter schools are, of course, a divisive issue. The district's four-year graduation rate for the 2016-17 school year reached 72.7%. Yet, the disparity between schools across the district is profound. And, in my personal opinion, those rising graduation rates are padded by programs for struggling students that are focused on improving data, rather than education and student success. And yet, as a whole, we are a highly educated city with just over half of our residents possessing a bachelor's degree or higher. I've attended two Boston institutions and one in Cambridge, and I have the sweatshirts to prove it. Horace Mann, who had a profound impact on education in America, hails from the Boston area. At least 47 schools across America are named for Mann, including one right here in Alston. Historian Elwood P. Cumberly describes Mann as such. 
No one did more than he to establish in the minds of the American people the conception that education should be universal, non-sectarian, free, and that its aims should be social efficiency, civic virtue, and character, rather than mere learning or the advancement of education ends. To set the stage for a man's life and work, we're going to start with a quick overview of some of Boston's firsts in education. Our Puritan forefathers and foremothers placed a strong emphasis on education at every age level for their children, beginning at home. A primary reason for this was the ability to read the Bible for spiritual and moral instruction. Puritan leaders themselves were accustomed to the highest educational standards, with most of their ministers having graduated from Oxford or Cambridge universities. In 1635, they established Boston Latin School, the first school in the colony, and modeled it after the European Latin School model, which emphasized the learning of religion, Latin, and classical literature. The school originally began as the South Grammar School, and was specifically modeled after the Boston Grammar School in Lincolnshire, England, from where many of Boston's original settlers derived. In the early years, the school was funded by donations, rather than tax dollars. English was not the dominant language of the world at that time, and the ability to read and speak more than one language was considered important for those who would excel. Therefore, the learning of Latin was a top priority, as it was with grammar schools in England. The ability to read at least Cicero and Virgil was a requirement of all colonial colleges, and to write and speak Latin in verse and prose was the first of the Harvard Laws of 1642, followed by Christian conversion. Boston Latin prepared many students for admission to Harvard, founded the year after BLS, with a total of seven years on long, hard wooden benches. No data is available on how many students walked uphill both ways in the snow to get there. However, most graduates of Boston Latin did not go on to college since business and professions didn't require collegiate studies. The school has produced four Harvard presidents, four Massachusetts governors, and five signers of the Declaration of Independence. Benjamin Franklin is among its most well-known dropouts. BLS admitted only male students and hired only male teachers for over 200 years. The school's first female student was admitted in 1859. Helen McGill White went on to become the first woman to earn a Ph.D. in the United States. However, soon after White's graduation in 1877, the Girls' Latin School, later the co-ed Boston Latin Academy, was founded. For nearly a century, all qualified female students would attend that all-girls institution. It was not until 1972 that BLS would admit its first co-educational class— by enrolling 104 girls into a school with more than 2,000 teenage boys. It was a change vociferously objected to by the school's headmaster, Wilfred O'Leary, and many of the school's alumni. The integration only happened due to the Massachusetts legislature passing a bill forbidding sex discrimination in public schools. However, some traditions have stood the test of time. Four years of Latin are mandatory for all pupils who enter the school in the seventh grade, and three years are required for those who enter at the ninth. In 1639, the Mather School opened in Dorchester and became the oldest free public school in North America. It was named after Richard Mather, an English-born American congregational minister who immigrated to Boston and settled in Dorchester in 1635. Our listeners know him as the grandfather of Cotton Mather. 
The distinction between the Mather School and BLS is that the Mather School was publicly funded from its founding. The founding is noted in the Dorchester Town Records of 1639. It is ordered on the 20th of May, 1639, that there shall be a rent paid of 20 pounds yearly, forever imposed upon Thompson's Island, to be paid by every person that has property in the said island, according to the portion that any such person shall from time to time enjoy and possess there. And this towards the maintenance of a school in Dorchester, this rent of 20 pounds yearly to be paid to such a schoolmaster as shall undertake to teach English, Latin, and other tongues, and also writing. In 1645, the town reaffirmed its commitment to public education by declaring that the schoolmaster shall equally and impartially receive and instruct such as shall be sent and committed to him for that end, whether their parents be poor or rich, not refusing any who have right and interest in the school. The first building was a one-room schoolhouse and was located on what had been known as Settler Street, near the corner of the present Pleasant and Cottage Streets. It served as such until 1694, when a contract was made with John Trescott to build a schoolhouse 20 feet long and 19 feet wide, with a ground floor, a chamber above, a flight of stairs, and a chimney. The contract required the building to be boarded and clabberded, to be filled up between the studs, and to be fully covered with boards and shingles. The site of this building is presumed to be the hill near the meeting house, on what is now known as Winter Street. The successor of the schoolhouse is located on Parish Street today. Rounding out the trio of firsts, Roxbury Latin School was founded in Roxbury by the Reverend John Elliot under a charter received from Charles I. Founded in 1645, it's the oldest continually operating school in North America. Elliot founded the boys' school to fit students for public service, both in church and in commonwealth, in succeeding ages. The school still considers instilling a desire to perform public service among its principal missions, in service to roughly 300 boys in grades 7 through 12 per year. And lastly in this list of firsts, BPS is the oldest public school system in America, founded in 1647. As history would have it, Horace Mann didn't attend any of these fine institutions. Mann was born on May 4, 1796, in the town of Franklin, Massachusetts. His father was a farmer with limited financial means. From 10 years old to the age of 20, he had no more than six weeks schooling during any year, but he made use of the Franklin Public Library, the first public library in America. See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking on your own, and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a f***ing education you could have got for $1.50 in late charges at the public library. At 20, he enrolled at Brown University and graduated in three years as valedictorian in 1819. The theme of his oration was the progressive character of the human race. He then studied law for a short time in Rentham and was a tutor of Latin and Greek, and then a librarian at Brown from 1821 to 23. During this time, in 1822, he also studied at Litchfield Law School. In 1823, Mann was admitted to the bar in Dedham. A few years later, Mann was elected to the legislature in 1827, and in that role was active in the interests of education, public charities, and laws for the suppression of intemperance and lotteries. He established an asylum in Worcester, 
and in 1833 was chairman of its board of trustees. Mann continued in the legislature as the representative from Dedham until his move to Boston in 1833. While in the legislature, he was a member of the Committee for the Revision of the State Statutes, and a large number of salutary provisions were incorporated into the code at his suggestion. After their enactment, he was appointed one of the editors of the work and prepared its marginal notes and its references to judicial decisions. He was elected to the Massachusetts State Senate from Boston in 1835 and was Senate President in 1836 and 1837. As a member of the Senate, he spent time as the majority leader and aimed his focus at infrastructure, funding the construction of railroads and canals. In 1837, Mann was appointed secretary of the newly created Massachusetts Board of Education, and he began the work that would place him at the forefront of American education. Upon beginning his duties, he withdrew from all other business engagements and from politics. Burke Aaron Hinsdale, in Horace Mann and the Common School Revival in the United States, offers insight into how Mann approached this work. Mr. Mann says in his final report that when he first assumed the duties of the secretaryship, two courses lay open before him. One was to trust the school system of the state as though it were perfect, to praise teachers for a skill that they had no chance of acquiring and did not possess, to applaud towns for the munificence they had not shown, in a word, to lull with flattery a community that was already sleeping. The other course was to advocate an energetic and comprehensive system of education, to seek for improvements both at home and abroad, to expose justly but kindly the incompetence of teachers, to inform and stimulate school committees in respect to their duty, to call for money adequate to the work to be done. He said that one course would for a time have been ignobly popular. The other was imminently perilous. Horace Mann saw all this, but he did not hesitate. Duty left him no option. The only way to end prosperously was to begin righteously. He dove in with a remarkable intensity, holding teachers' conventions, delivering numerous lectures and addresses, carrying on an extensive correspondence, and introducing numerous reforms. Mann persuaded his fellow modernizers, especially those in the Whig Party, to legislate tax-supported elementary public education in their states, and to recruit women to the teaching field. Most northern states adopted one version or another of the teaching system he established in Massachusetts, especially the program for normal schools to train professional teachers. Side note, normal school, in this context, is a term for an institution created to train high school graduates to become teachers by educating them in the norms of pedagogy and curriculum. We'd call it a teaching school today, but most have been integrated into larger colleges or universities. The normal schools trained mostly women, giving them new career opportunities as teachers. Mann believed that women were better suited for teaching than men. Mann traveled to every school in the state so he could physically examine each school ground. He planned and inaugurated the Massachusetts Normal School System in Lexington, which shortly thereafter moved to Framingham. He founded Westfield Normal School, now Westfield State University, in 1838 as the first public coeducational college in America without barrier to race, gender, or economic class. And in 1840, he founded Bridgewater Normal School, 
now Bridgewater State University, and the oldest permanently located institution of public higher education in Massachusetts. And this was just three years into the job. Additionally, Mann began preparing a series of annual reports, which had a wide circulation and were described by Hinsdale as being among the best expositions, if indeed they are not the very best ones, of the practical benefits of a common school education, both to the individual and to the state. In 1838, he founded and edited the Common School Journal. In this journal, Mann targeted the public school and its problems. His six main principles were, number one, the public should no longer remain ignorant. Number two, that such education should be paid for, controlled, and sustained by an interested public. Number three, that this education will be best provided in schools that embrace children from a variety of backgrounds. Number four, that this education must be non-sectarian. Number five, that this education must be taught using the tenets of a free society. And number six, that education should be provided by well-trained, professional teachers. Under the auspices of the board, but at his own expense, he went to Europe in 1843 to visit schools, especially in Prussia, and his seventh annual report, published after his return, embodied the results of this tour. Many editions of the report were printed, not only in Massachusetts, but in other states, in some cases by private individuals, and in others by legislatures, and several editions were issued in England. Mann hoped that by bringing children of all classes together, they could have a common learning experience. This would also give an opportunity to the less fortunate to advance on the social scale and position education as the tool that would equalize the conditions of men. Mann also suggested that having schools would help those students who did not have appropriate discipline in the home. Building a person's character, in his opinion, was just as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic. Instilling values such as obedience to authority, promptness in attendance, and organizing the time according to bell ringing help students prepare for future employment. The practical result of man's work was a revolution in the approach used in the common school system of Massachusetts, which, in turn, influenced the direction of other states. In carrying out this work, Mann met with bitter opposition from some Boston schoolmasters who strongly disapproved of his innovative pedagogical ideas and by various religious sectarians who argued against the exclusion of all sectarian instruction from the schools. There was also bitter resentment that the head of the Board of Education was a lawyer turned politician and not a teacher. And they were not exactly inspired by man's great orations about their deficiencies and incompetence. Boston teachers found man's seventh annual report, Post-European Trip, to be a direct criticism. Hinsdale describes their response. Accordingly, the Boston schools and the Boston masters, while the best of their kind, were still a part of the very system that Mr. Mann wished to reform. So the masters went on in their self-conscious way, appropriating to themselves the secretary's sharp criticisms until the cup of their endurance was filled to the brim. The seventh report caused it to overflow. The secretary had indeed used due diligence not to wound their sensibilities. He did not bring the schools of Massachusetts into formal comparison with those of Prussia, the schools of Boston with those of Dresden. But to their sensitive nerves, this did not matter. 
He held up the mirror, and they could not refrain from looking into it and seeing what other people saw. Or, as the writer just referred to said, his readers made the application fast enough. The Boston teachers saw that they were likely to lose a large share of the reputation they had inherited, and to be beset by still stronger importunities for reform. Thus urged, they resolved to quit their neutral position and to act vigorously in the offensive. They would appear as the champions of conservatism and do battle stoutly against the radical and innovating tendencies of the time. Overcoming their inertia, 31 of the masters sent out to the world a pamphlet of 144 pages called Remarks, etc., the purpose of which was declared to be, in some degree, to correct erroneous views and impressions, and thus tend to promote a healthy tone in public sentiment in relation to the many things connected with the welfare of our common schools. The masters were organized in a society called the Principals Association, and it was a committee of this association that sent out the pamphlet. The style and temper of the remarks betray a plurality of authorship. The preface is signed by 31 masters who united in the act, and differences of opinion among them are at once confessed and excused in the sentence, We have no object in view but the public good, and for that all are ready to yield things of minor consideration. It is plain that the masters think their enemies are upon them, and that they must sink the differences of opinion and make a united stand against the common foe. To borrow a figure used at the time, they wished to act in solid column, so that they might make up in weight what they lacked in skill and prowess. Man did what anyone who likes to have the last word would do. About two months later, he published a 176-page reply. Hinsdale continues, Professor Bowen's contemporary characterization of this reply as a whole is a perfectly just one. The secretary, he said, had not only vindicated himself, but had retaliated upon his assailants with terrible severity. Though he disliked the use of the rod for children, he evidently had no objection to whipping schoolmasters. And in this case, he had certainly plied the birch with remarkable dexterity and strength of arm. And if the reader did not keep in mind the unprovoked nature of the attack— and the importance of the interests which it was meant to injure, he would be tempted to pity the unhappy persons exposed to such a merciless punishment. The Old Deluder Satan Act of 1647, which required selectmen to make sure parents educated their children, indicates that early education in Massachusetts had a clear religious intent. However, by the time of man's leadership in education, various developments, including a vibrant populist Protestant faith and increased religious diversity, fostered a secular school system with a religiously passive stance. While Mann affirmed that our public schools are not theological seminaries, and that they are debarred by law from inculcating the peculiar and distinctive doctrines of any one religious denomination amongst us, or all that is essential to religion or to salvation, he assured those who objected to the secular nature that our system earnestly inculcates all Christian morals. It founds its morals on the basis of religion. It welcomes the religion of the Bible, and, in receiving the Bible, it allows it to do what it is allowed to do in no other system, to speak for itself. But here it stops, not because it claims to have encompassed all truth, but because it disclaims to act as an umpire between hostile religious opinions. 
Mann stated that this position resulted in a near-universal use of the Bible in the schools of Massachusetts, and that this served as an argument against the assertion by some that Christianity was excluded from his schools, or that they were anti-Christian. Mann also once stated that, It may not be easy, theoretically, to draw the line between those views of religious truth and Christian faith which is common to all, and may, therefore, with propriety, be inculcated in schools, and those which, being peculiar to individual sects, are therefore by law excluded. Still it is believed that no practical difficulty occurs in the conduct of our schools in this regard. Rather than sanctioning a particular church, as was often the norm in many states, the legislature prescribed books calculated to the favor of the tenets of any particular set of Christians. In the spring of 1848, Mann was elected to the United States Congress as a Whig to fill the vacancy caused by the death of John Quincy Adams. His first speech in that role was an advocacy of Congress's right and duty to exclude slavery from the territories. And in a letter in December of that year, he said, I think the country is to experience serious times. Interference with slavery will excite civil commotion in the South but it is best to interfere. Now is the time to see whether the Union is a rope of sand or a band of steel. He said, I consider no evil as great as slavery, and I would pass the Wilmot Proviso whether the South rebel or not. During the first session, he volunteered as counsel for Drayton and Sayers, who were indicted for the theft of 76 enslaved people in the District of Columbia. And at that trial, he was engaged for 21 successive days in their defense. In 1850, he was engaged in a controversy with Daniel Webster in regards to the extension of slavery and the fugitive slave law. Calling Webster's support for the Compromise of 1850 a vile catastrophe and comparing him to Lucifer descending from heaven. Man served from April of 1848 until March of 1853. In September of 1852, Mann was nominated for governor of Massachusetts by the Free Soil Party, and the same day was chosen president of the newly established Antioch College at Yellow Springs, Ohio. Failing in the election for governor, he accepted the presidency of the college, which he continued in until his death. There, he taught economics, philosophy, and theology. He was popular with students and with audiences across the Midwest who attended his lectures promoting public schools. At Antioch, Mann employed Rebecca Pinnell, his niece, as the first woman faculty member to be paid on an equal basis with her male colleagues. Antioch College was founded by the Christian Connection, which later withdrew its financial support, causing the college to struggle for many years with meager financial resources, due to sectarian infighting. Mann himself was charged with non-adherence to sectarianism because, previously a Congregationalist by upbringing, he joined the Unitarian Church rather than the proto-evangelicalism of the Christian connection. He collapsed shortly after the 1859 commencement and died that summer. Antioch historian Robert Straker wrote that man had been crucified by crusading sectarians. Ralph Waldo Emerson lamented what seems the fatal waste of labor and life at Antioch. Man's wife, who wrote in anguish that the blood of martyrdom waters the spot, later disinterred his body from Yellow Springs. He's buried in the North Burial Ground in Providence, Rhode Island, next to his first wife, Charlotte Messer Mann. 
To learn more about Horace Mann, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 116. We'll have links to the Hinsdale book quoted from in the episode, as well as several of Mann's texts, including an autobiography. We'll also include links to information about the old deluder Satan Act, because it really seems like something you should have in your back pocket. And of course, we'll have information about our upcoming event and this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might just play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about abolitionist David Walker's radical appeal. (laughs) 